Here's the good news. I dare say there's not a single person joining us today who isn't part of an effort somewhere to close the gap between best care for patients and harmful events and complications. There's real work going on in real healthcare settings in the U.S. and in many other countries that is moving things in the right direction. Hospital-acquired infection reduction and prevention is one of the most promising areas. And yet, and yet, when researchers attempt to identify overall progress with harm, the indicators aren't always there. And worse, perhaps, improvers themselves are frustrated that there's still so much that can go wrong, especially in acute care settings, that isn't captured by current checklists and bundles and following even the best infection prevention protocols. What are these things that are missed or that initially go unnoticed? What are the systems that can spot adversity in the making? How does something called situational awareness help? Well, we're going to try and probe a bunch of these things on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. WIHI, as you know, we're now well and well, we're actually this month, um, well, we're into our fourth year now. In May, we celebrate three years with you, and now we're off and running into our fourth year. So as you know, we look for promising innovation wherever it's unfolding, and today that means we're going to point towards Ohio. So let me now provide some brief introductions of our guests, and a reminder, there are longer bios on the WIHI pages of IHI.org. Dr. Stephen Muthing is a pediatrician and hospitalist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where he's also vice president for safety. A lot of what he's going to be talking about today stems from work he's doing at the James Anderson Center for Health Systems Excellence at Cincinnati Children's. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Madge. Great to be with everybody today. All right. Terrific. Steve works closely with Dr. Ann Lyron, also a pediatrician. She's at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Dr. Lyron co-chairs the Hospital Children's Hospital Solution. Did I say that right? The Ohio Children's Hospital Solutions for Patient Safety. (laughs) We'll learn more about this effort in just a minute if I can get the name right. Welcome, Ann. Thank you very much. Good okay. to be here. All right, terrific. And we've managed to snag the most busy IHI vice president that I've ever known. Uh, maybe that's because you're working so hard on safety, Carol Harridan. Uh Carol came out of a meeting to be with us for at least the first half of this hour, and in person no less. Carol has perhaps the sharpest sense of anyone I know for what the safety journey entails and why we're often coming up short, even as we also have uh, successes to celebrate. Welcome, Carol. Great to be here. All right, we're going to get started. And as John said, we will keep track of resources and references that get mentioned during today's program. We'll either chat them in in real time or we'll make sure they're on a resource document that we post by tomorrow morning along with the audio from today's program. So welcome, everyone. Um, About uh, over 600 of you are on board already, and uh, just keep on coming. We're glad to have you. So I'm going to start off with a very, very quick round-robin question. These are... Are, uh, quick answers. This is not a game show, so I'm not, um, you know, going that fast. But these are just kind of quick. Uh, set the table for us, really uh, succinctly, if you could. I'll go in the order of Steve, Anne, and Carol. So everyone on today's program, I suspect, is here because they know um, that there's some real issues with reliability and safety, especially with hospital care. So I want to know 
What have we discovered about the safety work that we didn't understand or understand sufficiently perhaps before or when we maybe started on this journey? Steve, let me start with you. Uh, Madge, I would say that um, when we started our journey, I'll say, uh, we, culture was a, a nice word, and, and we thought, yeah, let's just go change our culture. But what we've come to learn and now are practicing closer and closer to the where we want to get to is that culture, there's actually a number of specific things that we can do that to change uh, and get excellent at that really drives culture. Okay, thanks. Anne? You know, I, I totally agree with Steve. I think our traditional focus in healthcare on process improvement has really not given enough attention to the culture. That, that's the mindset, the tone, the values that an organization possesses. And I think what we've learned is that bad culture can trump exquisite evidence-based process. All right. Those are definitely uh, almost headline-worthy. Carol, what would you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to get down even uh, deeper um, uh, down into uh, clinician care. I think there's a huge underappreciation for process. We always talk about patient outcomes, 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 and we really have a, a real underappreciation for reliable processes. So um, culture is uh, all of everything that Ann and Steve have said and reliable reliable processes built into the system. I don't think we that's a new science for Healthcare. Okay. Well, that's part of what we're going to be talking about. We did this actually a couple of months ago uh, with Dr. Chasson uh, from um, the Joint Commission. We were looking at high reliability. So I'm happy we're kind of back in, in that space again. So thank you all three. And Steve, uh, now let me go back to you. So I want to ask you, what are the fundamentals we need to nail but haven't yet and put this in the context of why this has become so important at Cincinnati Children's? Madge, I, I don't know if I um, can hit them all, uh, <laughs> nor do I think I even know the all. Yeah. But I'll tell you, what I think that what um, uh, to us has happened is, as we've tried to under, truly understand high reliability uh, thinking, is that uh, when we look back at the way we used to approach things, I think we relied uh, on hope being a strategy. We hoped everything would go well today. We hoped everybody remembered to do everything that they were supposed to do. We hoped the right people were on call tonight. We hoped they answer the phone. And I think what we've come to discover is that hope's not a very reliable strategy. And um, so, you know, the fundamentals to us that we've really been trying to get right is understanding um, what are the risks that are present at the current moment. And this could be from the organizational level, it could be at the unit level, it could be at the individual patient level. But that not, um, I think historically some people just did this subconsciously and um, you know whether they were our top gun nurses or our top gun doctors or therapists or whatever they might be, they did it in their head that they thought about what the risks were and they were already strategizing what they were going to do if things turned for the worse or what might go wrong. And I think what we've been trying to get right is uh, being explicit about this being uh, having structures that look at this um, risk and address it, speak it out loud, uh, pre-plan for what may go wrong, and uh, practice it 
day after day, shift after shift, patient after patient, and coach each other uh, on what uh, what do the best of the best of us do, and what is it that's in our mind, and what are we thinking ahead, and what, do we have everything we need in case things don't go well, and that uh, it's slowly but surely moving um, what used to just be, I hope everything goes well, to uh, thinking in terms of, I hope everything goes well, but I'm already planning that things might not, and let's in uh, having things organized so that if this is the time when there's a hole in the Swiss cheese, we're ready for that hole. That's uh, thank you. That's very helpful, and we will circle back with you shortly, uh, uh, specifically to talk about looking ahead. Can uh, just before I turn to Anne, can you give me an example or two of what are sort of some of the risks that people might not even notice as risks? Well, I think uh, it plays out in a number of different ways, but let me hone in specifically on a couple clinical examples, Madge. I think, um, for instance, uh, and these are real examples. I'm going to be a little vague, but they're real examples from Cincinnati Children's is that we're doing a procedure. We're doing a complex procedure. We've been planning it for weeks. Uh, It's finally the day. It's the time. And that in planning and prepping, Maybe a piece of equipment or maybe the staff that's ready to work on the procedure, um, something's not quite right. Um, Maybe the equipment's not quite functioning right. Maybe the staff isn't the staff we had hoped would be in the room at that time. And that all that planning that we had put in place to do this complex procedure was based on the fact that we hope everything's all organized and all the right people in the room. But in reality, they might not be. And what... uh, could seem like just a small little inconsequential thing, a piece of equipment not working right, could lead to disastrous results. And I have to tell you, at Cincinnati Children's, that's happened. Okay. Or perhaps another example, again, a real one, would be a child was showing some signs that I'm not doing well. I'm not following the path we thought we were toward recovery. I'm showing some subtle signs that I'm deteriorating. And to some people, they might have picked up on the trends, but the people that were staring at it moment by moment, day after day, had got so focused on uh, what they were doing, giving an antibiotic, uh, watching a monitor or whatever, they couldn't step back and see that these subtle signs were showing that I'm heading for, I'm heading for the cliff, I'm heading for deterioration, and things happened suddenly or what seems suddenly, and the child had deteriorated and was in trouble and uh, was harmed from that. Again, that has happened at Cincinnati Children's. All right. Those are both very helpful, and I thank you for your willingness to share that. That just brings that into light a little bit. Uh, Thank you, uh, Steve Muthing. Anne, tell us about the statewide and national children's hospital networks that you're helping to lead and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. Uh, you know, the Ohio Children's Hospitals have been working together for a couple of decades, actually. But in 2009, the, the eight tertiary care referral centers in Ohio decided to tackle a couple of um, hospital-acquired conditions, surgical site infections and adverse drug events, to see if we could learn to share information and work together, and that would sort of expedite and potentiate our work. And it was great. We decreased surgical site infections by 60%. We decreased adverse drug events by 50%. And we were really, we were really fired up by our success. But we also just sat in a room one day and 
said to each other, you know what, even with these improvements, we are still harming children at a totally unacceptable rate. So we decided that we were going to do something really audacious, and we were going to say, you know what, we're going to get rid of it all. We're going to be honest with one another, begin counting candidly and thoroughly uh, how often it is that we harm children, and improve our detection systems, and see what we got, and then we're going to go after it. And we committed ourselves to working on this together. Um, so in January of 2011, we started concerted efforts to work um, work on this. When we actually got the number of children that we harmed, we were nauseous. And um, but it did it did. Um, really inspire us and it continues to inspire us to work on efforts not only associated with process improvements around common areas of harm like bloodstream infection, surgical site infection, serious falls and things like that, but also this culture work to which we've kind of been referring. Um, the way that, that employees behave, the way that leaders behave, um, and the way that the organization as a whole behaves and, and values safety. And we've really seen some um, great success so far and have um, dropped our harm events significantly. But it's been a lot of work. We have we were fortunate recently uh, last fall to receive one of the partnership for patient um, contracts through CMS, and are in the process of spreading our work to a total of 33 uh, children's hospitals across the country who um, are now part of our national children's network and are all learning to work and share together um, because we have really been convinced in the state of Ohio that it's through this sharing, this candid sharing, that we are really going to move the dial on patient safety for children. Tell me whether this is part of what you're talking about here is this concept of situational awareness um, that I guess could become a new buzzword, but it, it has some meaning and it also comes right out of various safety industries. So, Anne, I know when we prepped for um, our program today, you talked about uh, you know all kinds of things that people were sharing about daily huddles and being able to mm-hmm. kind of monitor things in, in the making. I think Steve was alluding to kind of a situational awareness. Does this sort of fall under that concept? You know, it's it's such a core principle of patient safety is to really have a sense of where you are, where your patient is, and where your organization is. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of one of the one of the tools that we have implemented across the Ohio hospitals and are sharing with the, the hospitals that have joined our national network. And this is called an organizational safety brief. So this is sort of not on the micro level, not on the individual level anymore. It's on the org- organizational level. What this entails is that every morning um, in each one of our organizations at a specified time, say 8.20, there's a 10-minute call where um, all the key leaders from the organization are on the phone call together, and they're talking about what was it that happened in the last 24 hours, where are we now, and what do we anticipate in the next 24 hours. And it sounds so simple, but just about every organization who has implemented it says <laughs> revolutionized um, kind of the lateral communication, the vertical communication in the organization. The types of people who are on this call, it's not just clinical folks. Um, it's the CEO, it's the COO, it's the director of 
patient security, um, the director of facilities engineering. Um, it may be, you know, again, clinical directors, but it really kind of crosses all disciplines because I think uh, those of us who work in patient safety and even those of us who don't but pay attention to this, this kind of thing know that, um, that, that, that errors occur um, that involve people from many, many different disciplines sometimes, that it's not always the RN or the MD who drops the ball on a particular case. And so it's important for us to use, to use our entire infrastructure um, to protect our patients. So this is, a, this is an example, I think, of situational awareness. So instead of the COO being the only one that's aware of what's going on um, and, and then trying to tell everybody just sort of throughout the day, immediately after that call, people have a sense of um, what, what's, where are the fires, uh, literally and figuratively in the organization, what do I need to be worried about, how can I help? That's very helpful. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that further elaboration. All right, I'm going to now uh, turn, go across the table here to Carol Harden for thoughts about what you're hearing so far. And uh, I think Carol was also, um, did we begin to get a sense of maybe who some of the clinical folks you want to ask about that? Yeah, and um, just to to get uh, as practical as we can so folks on the phone uh, can understand the system. When you say uh, leaders get together, what level of of clinical leader attends that meeting? It's, it's a little bit variable across organizations, um, but typically there is there's somebody in the organization who may have a sense of um, capacity, for example. Um, so it's, it's typically not a manager. It's kind of a director-level person. There's usually around 15 people on the call. Um, however, it is in, in many organizations... Uh, anyone is invited to join the call. This is not a secret society. This is anybody can join. And in many organizations, managers um, of units will join the call as well. However, they aren't they aren't responsible for reporting um, in a formalized way the way uh, a director level person might. Is, is that clear? Sure. Yeah. How yep. does, thanks, Anne. Okay. How, how does that sound to you, Carol? Uh, it it's, it sounds great. Um, it, it, honestly. Getting every getting people on the same page and getting them further upstream is is really important. One of the things that I saw at Cincinnati Children's that has been extremely impressive to everybody who's been there is the charge nurse meeting in the morning and uh, getting the folks who are in charge of those units to talk about the kinds of things that they're worried about might happen, not just the things that are going to happen. Everybody talks about how many admissions, how many discharges, but they're talking about who are the kids you're worried about. They have a word for that. Steve can tell you, watchers, who might fail, You know, who might get a call from the rapid response team. We like to think those things are unknowable, like this is an emergency, because this is how we function as healthcare people. We like emergencies. We, we must. We, we're in a reactive mode all the time. So uh, getting believing that you actually can get up ahead enough to say, "Wow, I, I got a kid I've got my eyes on, and I got a couple who could fall over," and so let's think about that now is way up ahead of where we are as uh, as an industry. What do you? I'm going to ask Steve more about this uh, prospective, but why is this so uh, present right now in children's hospitals? I, I I can't help but feel that there's there's just an attention that's going on, and some I could start to speculate on some of that, but why do you think? Me too, as an old pediatric nurse, I can speculate. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this is, for me personally, there's a sense of vulnerability, a sense of duty to children that that of, 
um, knowing that you have someone in front of you who cannot help themselves. Uh, with, an, with adults, you have a different sense of um, their ability to speak up. You don't have that with children. However, and this is very important, you have a set of parents or at least one standing there next to you. So you have two, two patients every day or three or four or five, and they are looking very carefully at what you're doing. So I think there is not only a sense of uh, vulnerability and duty, you have partnerships in those parents who are asking some tough questions, uh, and it's uh, because they feel the same way about their child. I think that's a piece of it, honestly. Okay. Thanks, Carol. Steve, do you agree with that? And um, I'll use that as kind of your segue into giving us a little more idea about what is this forward-looking, uh, looking ahead, anticipata- anticipating things at Cincinnati Children's. What does that look like? Yeah, I, um, so as far as why children's hospitals, um, I, I have to agree with Carol, is the concept that we would hurt a child is so painful to us that uh, we're just not comfortable anymore in, um, you know, once we lifted up the rock and saw what we were doing, um, there's no more need for urgency than to see that we have hurt this number of children. So let me get to the specifics. Ian talked about it, what it might look at, or what it does look like at the organization level. Let me talk to you, explain what it looks like as if you were at one of our huddles. We have here at Cincinnati Children's um, 16 inpatient units, and I could describe what they do in our mental health area, our periop area, but let me just go through the inpatient. And that every eight hours, those the leaders of those 16 units um, get together. So at 8, 4.30, and at midnight, the leaders of those units get together and openly share with each other what their predictions are for the next eight hours. And how they get to be organized enough to be able to do that is we have focused on a concept uh, that we're calling identify, mitigate, and this escalate, so that at the front line, the expectation is the frontline nurses and the frontline interns, every four hours, they're responsible for uh, being aware, does their patient have any of the uh, risk factors that we have identified for clinical deterioration? And in our world, we found five risk factors that are 100% sensitive for children who are going to deteriorate. And every four hours, those frontline people have to report to their charge nurse and senior physicians, do any of their patients have any of the risk factors? And then throughout a shift, it's the charge nurse and senior physician's job to mitigate. We have found that that those are the people who have, they don't have the contact. They might miss something, so it's the front line that makes them aware. But these are the folks that have the best trend recognition. They have the most years of experience. And they, as they're aware, can mitigate most situations. But they can't mitigate them all. They're not comfortable all the time. They don't know what to do. So every eight hours, they get together for about a 15-minute huddle. Each of them reports out on anything that's happened in the last eight hours, and then they have to predict which of their situations, which of their risk situations that they're concerned that they haven't been able to mitigate totally. And it allows us an opportunity to coach. And it gets so specific, as um, uh, Carol, you were mentioning, each charge nurse now predicts whether they will need a rapid response team call in the next eight hours. And at the beginning, when we first started doing that, every single one of them just said, I hope not. But now it is incredible after about a year and a half of doing this, a 
the charge nurses confidently talk about whether uh, what plans that they have in place for their risk factors, whether they've had any trouble with that plan, and they're very specific. If this happens, we're doing this. If this happens, we're doing this. And then they talk about uh, it with an inc- incredible amount of confidence that I think this one might need a rapid response team, and if it's going to happen, it'll happen the next two hours. They're talking ways that they never they thought were impossible. Uh, they all thought it was almost by chance that a rapid response team would happen under their watch. And now they truly have embraced the fact that they can predict this, and it's, it's an expectation that they escalate. It's not call us if you need us. It's no. Every eight hours we sit down and we talk about this. And at that huddle, there's a senior nurse who's watching the entire inpatient system and a senior physician who we now call the safety officer of the day who's literally in the room with them listening to these plans, looking at them in the eye, seeing how confident they are, and coaching with them, and at times giving them very individualized feedback on, and even to the point of, I'll walk up with you and we'll go look at this patient together right this minute. So that's how it plays out on an inpatient unit. The periop does it their own way. They, They predict risk for every operating room and have a huddle every eight hours. Our mental health talks about which child might have an escalation, et cetera. So it plays out differently depending on the clinical area, but the essence of identify, mitigate, and escalate are the same at all of those clinical areas. Really interesting. And uh, just a very quick question. I think you had mentioned that uh, some of this is also embedded in the electronic health record uh, as a way of flagging uh, to make sure that the risks are, or it, make, make sure I, I've got that right. Yeah, you do, and it certainly wasn't, uh, we certainly were a long way from that at the beginning, and we didn't get all um, uh, excited about the potential of the electronic health record because we didn't know where this would go. But now that we uh, are pushing almost two years of doing this work, we've gotten so confident in that our ability to uh, predict these risks that now in our electronic health record, I can, when I'm safety officer, I can log on at any time and see the list across the inpatient area that predicts risks, and now we've gone from not only are we predicting clinical deterioration and who are we worried about our watcher, as Carol um, described as our term, but now the nurses have expanded their confidence that they're now predicting which families may be upset and have an experience failure in the next eight hours and uh, are working with our our experts in that area to just like they're thinking about clinical deterioration they're applying these same concepts to what they call experience failures okay thank you so much and i can see the questions are starting uh to uh pile up uh in real time as uh, you're asking things people have questions we're going to turn to those in just a moment i want to turn to carol and ann just uh, once more before we open things up uh for the chat questions and comments so first carol and then ann so i have to admit i'm listening to to something that sounds so necessary, and why isn't everybody doing this, uh, children or not? And Carol, let me just bring your mic up. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, children, we perceive to be more vulnerable, but all of us would like to have this system of care, no matter where we are, regardless of uh, our age, uh, gender, uh, 
religion, doesn't matter what. We, we would we would certainly like to have this in place. Um, why isn't it everywhere? I, it's the nature of healthcare has been always in the past uh, to have a bit of an emergency mentality. Um, we treat you when you're sick, not before. So uh, you know why would we be worrying about all of this? So now we're starting to see, of course, uh, patients living longer, more and more complexity, and and it's it's just. Uh, becoming a necessity, not not a nice to do thing. Um, there's no way. There's no reason, no reason at all that what Steve is talking about couldn't be instituted in any place. And I know we'll get lots of questions as to how. So I just want to say this. This is. Uh, I have two sayings that will be attributed to me probably on my tombstone. One is hope is not a plan. Mm-hmm. So if you start to hear yourself saying I hope it'll work, you know you have no plan. And they learned that at Cincinnati. I think the other is. Um, when you are looking at this work, when you're thinking about this work, you have to go beyond the – every time you hear yourself say, well, we can't do that, I, I want you to know that you pay now or pay later. Uh, it's okay. Don't rescue anyone now. Wait till they come to your ICU or you call a code team. There is no free lunch. We have to fix this. We have to fix it for everybody. All right. Thank you very much. And what are your thoughts? I know uh, some of what Steve is describing is kind of part of an evolution of where the Ohio and I'm sure kind of the national network wants to go. What would you say are some of the challenges in being able to kind of even get this deep and sophisticated? You know, Madge, I I think in my mind, um, I'm sure there's not anybody who's listening that doesn't agree, you know, let's do this, why aren't we doing this? But I, I think that one of the key steps that we can't overlook is the work that we did to open our eyes to how often this is happening. What was it, 1999, the Institute of Medicine put out their report talking about the thousands upon millions of people who die in hospitals every year, but it doesn't resonate with individuals in the way that it needs to. Um, And I think that when we in Ohio actually counted our own errors and, you know, were honest with one another about them, is when we really began to see people getting on board for making real changes and kind of going beyond the theory to the actual practice, being willing to change their behaviors. Okay. All right. Okay. I think we've kind of laid a little... uh a bunch of things out there, and uh, better get to these questions <laughs> uh, in the next half hour. So thank you, Steve, Anne, and Carol. And at some point, Carol may need to slip away and return to her meeting, but we're very, very glad that you could join us. And uh, all of this to be continued, and the WHI programs also often give us some indication of some of the interests out there and uh, as we you know, develop some of our own programs and follow-up kinds of things. So, John, you want to remind, I don't know if anyone needs reminding about how to use chat, but go ahead and try. <laughs> yeah, we have a chatty bunch today. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a reminder, um, when you're addressing questions, make sure that they're addressed to all participants, and that way everybody can hear you, um, everybody can see you, and um, and Carol and Madge here in the studio will be able to see your questions as well. All Thanks. right. Okay, very good. Thanks so much, John. All right, I'm going to start with a few clarifying things. Uh, Steve, somebody wanted to know what the five risks are. Can you describe those? Yeah, I may be glad to, and uh, let me just say, I think they're specific to us in a children's hospital. I don't think they're applicable. What we did is we had a group of uh, folks look at, uh, I think it was around 50 kids that clinically deteriorated or coded, ended up in the ICU suddenly, and they 
independently came up and then together as a group came up with these five risk factors. Number one is that they had an elevated, we use an early warning score, so just a numerical, they had an elevated early warning score and they set a number at it. Uh, that we were doing a high-risk therapy, which is different for every clinical unit. It's basically we're doing a therapy we don't normally do, something we're not familiar with. Number three was uh, that, um, that they're a watcher, uh, which was a term that the uh, nurses taught us that it, it's they're uh, doing something that we're not... Um, we don't, uh, or the child's giving us a bad feeling uh, or a worrisome feeling. Uh, the fourth one was that the uh, family is uh, concerned, that uh, the family tells us there's something uh, not right. And then the fifth one uh, is called communication concern, but it's actually code word for we've got multiple doctor teams involved and they're not talking to each other. Okay. So those are our five risk factors. It's not what we would have predicted. We would have thought that the risk factors were specific physiologic criteria. Um, and so that now uh, throughout our uh, inpatient units, uh, we've just relentlessly focused on those five risk factors. There may be some that are more precise, but those five happen to be working for us. Okay. So a follow-up, and uh, anyone else, uh, Carol or Ann, feel free to jump in. Some people want to make sure they're really understanding the distinction between what you're talking about and what one would hope, I guess, are the parts of a rapid response system. Uh, so I, it may, I don't know how subtle that is uh, of a difference, but uh, Steve, very quickly, and let me see what Carol says. So I, I think they're interrelated. A rapid response team still hopes that whoever is down there uh, taking care of this kid gets to the point where they feel like they need help and have the gumption to call for help. Uh, this is uh, moving beyond the idea that uh, call us if you need us, whatever us means, and in this case a rapid response team, to know it's an expectation that every four hours at the unit level and every eight hours across the entire inpatient system we openly talk about this and talk about what we're going to do. Okay. Carol? And, yeah. Oh, go and, ahead. And, and, go, and ahead. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just going to add one thing, which is, um, you know, it's our experience in Ohio that there were a couple hospitals that, that developed these fantastic rapid response teams. They marketed them. They were populated by brilliant clinicians, and nobody called at the right time. And it wasn't because they didn't like them, and it wasn't because they didn't think they could be helpful. It's because they didn't realize where they were. They didn't have that situational awareness piece. So it wasn't until we um, these hospitals put into place some kind of criteria for calling them that it helped, you know, that they were actually appropriately and consistently took advantage of that tremendous resource. Carol, thank you. Yeah, rapid response teams are still pretty far down the track. You know, <clears throat> Steve talks about identify and mitigate. So we like prevent, identify, and mitigate, right? So the first is a prevention strategy. The second is identify when things go wrong. Third is let's go ahead and mitigate what's going on. Uh, so we want to get as far up that uh, as far up that continuum as possible. So rapid response teams definitely have a very important role. We're trying to get even ahead of that to say, as you're starting to look at kids, what systems can 
can we put in place? And I, I think that's the difference. As Steve talks about that huddle, anyone can can get together and say, gee, we got 15 problems today. The difference is, and I think you heard him say this, and here's the plan right now to try to mitigate those or prevent anything bad from happening. Now, barring that, things do. So what are, what are we ready to do once they once they happen? But getting as far up um, uh, far up that stream as possible is really important. Okay, thanks a lot. There are a couple. Hey, Carol, uh, Go ahead. I, yep. Or Madge, uh, I have to tell you, we're a huge academic center filled with skeptics, <laughs> and um, uh, describing things just doesn't cut it around here. So our group of docs and nurses who were leading this had to come up with a definition and a run chart to convince uh, the skeptics. And so they came up with a definition of a kid who uh, we, we wanted to do a better job. And they called it an, an unsafe transfer to the ICU. And they had a definition was a kid who ends up in the ICU, transferred to the ICU, and in the first hour needs to be intubated, start on pressors, or needed massive fluid resuscitation. Wow. And what we found is we were having one of those every eight days. Mm. And now... Um, after doing all this work, we can we have gone over uh, at times up to ninety days between unsafe transfers, and so this concept that it doesn't make a difference. And we have been doing a rapid response team for years when we started this effort. I think uh, so. so. Some of what I hear when I'm with you, Steve, and, and and I hear you say it here now, you probably take it for granted is the how critical language can be. So uh, one of the things I worked on flow for years, and yet when I went to your place, um, you call patients in the wrong unit or what, what, what I would call off-service patients in, in the UK they call borders you call those critical flow failures. Now that's a whole Correct. different mental model. Uh, that, that immediately alerts me that wow I have somebody here uh, on this unit and they shouldn't be here. This was a failure of our system so what are we going to do about it versus you know hey I got uh, four off-service patients today a uh, real pain in the neck um, not really sure what to do with them or we're not really comfortable and, and knowing their meds or what to do with them. So that language, even that you just used right now, and in, in the um, uh, a failure considering a child going to the ICU and needing that intense therapy right off the bat as a failure, uh, is really a, a bit of language that alerts you to a whole different mental model than just to say, gee, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we have kids who require early intervention or something. We use all of this language in healthcare to soften the blow, and I don't think we should, and not because we should feel bad, but because it stops us from acting uh, in a way that uh, is really takes advantage of a sense of urgency that we need. Thank you. Carol, all. you always do such a great job of cutting through the muck. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> when Carol speaks, we listen, sort of like E.F. Hutton. Does anybody, uh-oh, I'll date myself. They probably don't even exist anymore as a company. Um, let me, uh, let me. I'll kind of go around the horn here. So there are a couple of questions I'm also going to group together, and it's sort of one person is asking about clinician arrogance. Another person is asking about tools that sort of screen people for, um, in, in these positions for personality traits and behaviors um, to get out, I guess, in some sense, the questioner is wondering about sort of people's readiness to uh, a be part of uh, kind of these new systems. Uh, and let me start with you. To what extent is there a lot of discussion about sort of um, people's behavior and uh, way, ways to address this? Uh, well, I, I guess it's sort of 
two ways to look at those questions. One is creating will among people who believe that they're doing it all fine and right now. Um, and then the other is sort of um, how, how you manage those people just sort of a day-to-day to keep the world safe. And I think um, there's not a hospital that is working on this that, that doesn't have pockets of resistance. You know, people are, are all about the concept of change, as you know, until it involves them changing their own behavior. And, and again, I have to say that particularly with physicians, um, but, but I think with, with most people in healthcare, data can be very powerful in um, helping them come on board. And I think that uh, we in, in kind of quality improvement and patient safety, we use all the skills that we can muster in terms of, hey, how about trying this just one time, you know, just give it a shot and see how it happens, all those kinds of things to try to get resistors on board um, when they when they seem very skeptical. But I, I do think that the, probably the most powerful um, tool that we have is data. And at the beginning, that's data for how much harm is happening and how much room there is for improvement, especially when they think the status quo is okay. I think when you're talking about um, people who are um, arrogant and difficult to work with in, in just the setting of taking care of patients, um, that, that can be a real problem that, that really needs to be addressed by some of those cultural, behavior, cultural um, and behavior um, interventions. And I'll give you an example. Uh, it may be uh, a, a surgeon who comes into a room and wants to do a procedure on a child but doesn't wash his hands and um, the nurse says, will you please wash your hands? And he says, no, my hand's fine. And, you know, sort of what happens at that point is a real, um, I think, sensitive indicator for wh- where that microculture is at the moment. Um, so when the nurse reminds him again to wash his hands, does he say, okay, I'll wash my hands, thank you for the instruction? Or does she have to elevate it? And then what kind of response does she get from her leadership when she does that? So I think that um, over time, what, when people start to get on board with the idea of patient safety, the right answer when someone says, I think you meant to wash your hands is, oh, thank you very much, um, absolutely, and I appreciate your reminding me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it takes a while to get there, and, and a lot longer in some people than others. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Anne. Um, let me ask, uh, you mentioned leaders, and uh, that ties into a question I see in here, and I'm going to tie it in also to med students and residents. I realize we're talking about many different uh, constituents here, but somebody is asking, how do you, particularly at an academic medical center as Cincinnati is, uh, or a- anyone like it, uh, engagement of med students, residents, uh, and then somebody is also asking about senior leaders in rounding, and how are are they all brought into the situational awareness model uh, in particular roles? Is there education going on in that respect? Steve, let me ask you that one first. Yeah, I, I think on um, the senior leader um, question and situation awareness, um, I think it's very apropos, and it goes back to what Ann was describing, 
this same model that I'm describing at the inpatient unit is exactly the same thing that's happened at the organization level. Is it crucial that the CEO knows that there's a patient on unit number three who were worried about clinical deterioration? Absolutely not. But is it crucial that the CEO knows that uh, uh, we might be hitting a shortage of a drug and that the pharmacy's uh, having trouble filling that? And so that the... Uh, Depending on what level you're talking about, this concept of prediction and then uh, rapid mitigation or escalation uh, plays out. So that uh, so separate from the fact that leaders should be making walk rounds, et cetera, which we all uh, we totally believe in, this concept of building a, a structure for situation awareness um, at the organization level, at the uh, clinical area level, in this case I've been talking about is inpatient, and then right down down to the unit level, whether it's an operating room or a, um, a general pediatric unit, the fundamentals are the same, but we have to think through what is it that we're trying to prevent and, and therefore what predicts, uh, what risks do we need to uh, be aware of that predicts potential failures? Uh, now, med students and, and learners, I think um, we respect the idea that we want to teach them that, but this is a skill in a behavior that uh, you can't just read in a book. And so what we really are trying to build is opportunities for med students to be in on uh, huddles at the individual unit level where they hear this, they see how people talk to each other, um, and, uh, and that slowly but surely uh, we want them, we want our folks role modeling for them so that they can uh, begin to emulate and, um, that behavior. Somebody is also- one thing that we do, Mitch, yep. in in our. I was just going to say one thing that we do in our hospitals in Ohio is, um, and we have, uh, and it's no small thing, the support of all our CEOs, which which we we haven't talked about yet, but certainly um, executive leadership um, and support is quintessential in in this work. But what I was going to say is one of the things that we do is we, um, every, for example, we we have a. Um, a collection of air prevention behaviors, uh, and it's a mandatory training that every single person in the organizations who come in contact with children in any way, whether you're delivering, delivering a meal or changing a wastebasket or sitting at the front desk or you're a doctor or a nurse or a CEO, our medical student um, goes through this this air prevention training and so has a common language to use. Um, and that's, that's, I think, one of the ways that, A, we, um, you know, raise the, the value of safety in the organization, um, but also begin to, to touch medical students. And, 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 you know, they're there with alongside the CEOs and board members and things like that, realizing that they're an important link in the chain, too, and will continue to be throughout their careers. Thank you. Uh, somebody also was commenting about the obvious critical role of nurses and this being very, very important in nursing education as well. Uh, Anne, I'll hold on to you for a moment and ask you a follow-up question that comes from Denise wanting to know just very practically uh, a little bit more about the daily organizational level uh, guest conference call. Who sets the agenda and who tracks the follow-up? Yeah, so um, good question, and it's very uh, actually very protocolized because one of the one of the selling points early on is that you're gonna you're gonna be on this call for ten minutes 
end of story. This isn't this isn't a working meeting. This isn't where we come up we have a planning meeting, a strategy meeting. Um, this is a reporting meeting where everybody is really um, just becoming uh, aware of what the key safety issues are um, in the hospital. And I mentioned before the types of people who are there. They have, um, you know, I think when when most of our organizations began, there was literally a script for this is the kind of information that you're going. This is how we want you to present because it obviously has to be relatively short. Um, and it's it's generally focused on this is what these were what the events were in the last 24 hours. This is where we find ourselves now, and this is what we're concerned about. And then um, there is an opportunity for people to um, make brief comments or ask questions. But otherwise, it kind of it's got the same agenda every day. There's someone who takes notes. And um, in different organizations, the communication of this is handled in different ways. I mentioned that most organizations allow anyone to, um, any employee to be on the call, but there are some that the notes are immediately made available on the intranet for email to specific people. Um, and again, that happens in different ways in different organizations depending on um, how it can be helpful. I think the other thing about the organizational safety brief and another reason that is so popular among the organizations who have adopted it is that Although um, we're, we're here representing safety and, and we are most grateful for this tool for the impact that it has on safety, I think it also helps a lot of other areas. Um, the operational people, uh, you know, who focus mostly on operations find it very helpful. I think people who are um, focused on patient satisfaction find it very helpful. Um, you know, I, I can think of an example of a call recently that we had where there was a um, a fire in the OR, and there wasn't actually anyone hurt, but it did um, back things up. And immediately on the call were um, the child life specialists who recognized that there were people who were backed up in the waiting room who had children that may need to have some just, um, additional distraction during their waiting time. Um, there were people from um, family services who were saying, you know, we need to make sure that we're on top of parking passes. Um, and then the clinical people on the floors were, knew, knew that the OR was going to be tied up, so people, children who were going for um, elective surgeries were going to be delayed and so could be prepared to communicate with families and also change NPO orders and things like that to appropriately respond to it. So that's just a small example of how uh, just that immediate communication right there at 8.15 in the morning um, can really uh, positively impact so many different people across the hospital. Yeah, it sounds like a very important way to learn, uh, you know, from just that kind mm -hmm. of uh, scenario. Thanks. And uh, Carol, what? Yeah, just uh, just uh, I'm seeing some things in the chat. Uh, one thing I think that's really important to bring out, and I think Ann and Steve will back me up here. If not, I'll, I'll, I'm out there on my own. <laughs> uh, is uh, that they they did not just sit in the back room, make up these systems, and then institute them. There were, uh, I'm sure, lots of lots of trials, lots of small tests of change, uh, lots of let's try this and see how it works, uh, fix it as we go. So I know the, we do want to learn from their experience, absolutely. It's also true that for any of you out there um, – 
uh, the small tests of change of thinking about how might we start that can be a really tractable thing for everybody. So when you ask staff to come and you, they say they're busy, it feels like, oh, my gosh, one more thing. This is a lifetime commitment. But we might say, could we do this for four days and then stop and see what are the benefits of this? What are we learning? What needs to change? Uh, and what, what can we improve? That often can be really helpful. Um, Steve and Ann, what's your experience with that? Yeah, and I'm just going to pile on uh, okay. for just a second because mm-hmm. um, I do think it would be helpful. Maybe uh, start with you, Steve. Many people might want to get some stuff underway uh, in their own organization and might not be sure how to get it started and who might be sort of the instigators of this kind of work as Carol is talking about. Um, so, um, first of all, I have to totally obviously agree with Carol, but we agree on just about everything, so I'm not shocked. Uh, but one of our mantras in this work in Ohio is start before you're ready. And I have to tell you, if you had seen what it looked like when we first started, we were terrible and made so many mistakes. And um, and now what it looks like two years later, uh, it, it looks like uh, much, much closer to a well-oiled machine. But even today, we make terrible mistakes and we're learning every day so i totally agree with you carol as far as getting started i think it you i would strongly recommend people uh, buy into the concept of of uh this look back and look forward and find and fix uh problems is the goal uh if i was going to start anywhere i'd start at the organization level and start modeling it for clinical areas and so to, uh i would sit down with folks who do this uh who would uh theoretically be the barriers so whether that's a coo or a ceo or a cno one of those people and just say i need your buy-in to to uh, uh as carol described can we do this for a week um and then um and get started uh i think i just wouldn't plan for too long i i think it's build that learning loop and get started mm-hmm. thanks um I, I i'm curious whether or not uh the global trigger tool somebody has asked uh has that figured in uh i think we're sort of trying to see if we can connect the dots between sort of uh concepts and tools that people are also familiar with has the global trigger tool been in any way helpful in this process uh steve it's in Children's. Um, Madge, I, I think it's more interesting at the Ohio level. Can I turn it over to Ann? Ann yeah, that's fine. Uh, uh, how we uh, have approached harm measurement? Yes, we. Uh, what, what we've done in Ohio is, you know, we. One of the things that we got a little frustrated about was. Uh, it's hard to engage people when you're saying, you know, our BSI rate is 0.6 per 100 line days. I mean, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we began to focus on was actual children. How many children are we harming? Don't don't tell me the chart with the rate, although we agree that that's important for some reasons. But let's start adding up the number of children that are harmed. So we have, in Ohio, what we have is um, we have something called a serious harm index where we add up um, and we, uh, you know, work together to define what serious harm means. Um, and things like bloodstream infections, surgical site infections, um, severe peripheral IV infiltrates, um, like I mentioned before, serious falls, codes that happened outside, happen outside the ICU, and we call these events serious harm events, and we add them up by children, and we um, display them by children and talk about them by children. And then we have another um, 
Another one that's called all harm of all harm index, and that's a little bit broader. Um, so it might be an adverse drug event that's not quite as serious as the one that go in the serious category. But, you know, if we're going to talk about getting rid of harm, let's look kind of across the spectrum of harm that we really cause. So it's a, it's a little bit of a broader, um, a broader look. In terms of how we find the harm, we use every way we can come up with. I mean, we've used trigger tools for our ADEs. We use incident reporting. Um, we use uh, QA committees. We use conversations that happen on the hallways and then investigate them. I mean, any, any way that we can get the information, we do. And what we found over time in our organizations is that process actually becomes a lot easier as people gain confidence in the system. And realize that it's it's in all of our interests for this information to become the bubble to the surface so that it can be addressed appropriately. And so it's, it was a lot of work at the beginning when we were trying to figure out how to detect. There are some areas we think at, at detection, and we're working on that. Things like pressure ulcers, where we know we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of identifying um, significant pressure ulcers in children, much less improving and, and you know, causing those to decrease. Um, urinary tract infections is another area, and serious faults. I mean, again, these are things that we, we need to work on our detection systems as well. So we'll take any method that we think might work in terms of detecting, um, but I, I don't, you know, we've got a long road ahead of us there, uh, working hard on it, but um, always got to have our eye out for methods that will make that better. Well, Anne, I think that's, uh, we're going to, unbelievably, we're just about at the top of the hour, and I do see a few more very, very practical questions, and what I'll say to those of you who've chatted in and have some particular questions, we'll try and follow up and get some of those quick answers for you uh, directly. Some people are asking about whether some tools might be shared, um, and some are asking about checklists, and that means, that always tells me we could use another hour of the show, uh, but we also know we're in the middle of the day here, and people are very busy. So we'll see if we can't get some additional answers to you, those of you who've chatted in. I also want to just mention that on July 18th, um, IHI has a web in action, What Will Go Wrong Next? Detecting Frontline Problems Before They Become Harmful. That must be music to your ears, Steve. And uh, that does begin on Wednesday, July 18th. Um, IHI Senior Fellow, excuse me, Stephen Spear will be on board. He's fascinating and so uh, knowledgeable. So you can check that out. um, And in Enroll, if you'd like, on IHI.org. Uh, Steve, let me, I have just a few more parting words myself, but let me thank Anne, uh, Lyron, and uh, Steve, why don't you, uh, any final final words uh, for, for the crowd today? We had a great audience. Uh, my final uh, <laughs> plea would be uh, to um, just keep moving forward and, and don't get hung up on the fact that uh, it. it uh it's not all worked out um it wasn't and still is not for us and it, it, we're all in this together so let's just keep going and sharing and, and learning together would be my plea okay that sounds great very very quick question when this when you did your first kind of test of any of this uh at Cincinnati Children's uh do you recall what unit or where were you in the hospital that you tried something out 
Yeah, it, it, uh, we were on a general pediatric unit that had just experienced a serious safety event, and you talk about a group that was motivated. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, it wasn't all worked out. But I'll tell you an interesting thing is that when they, we first started doing this identify, mitigate, and I was a safety officer. At the beginning, I was a safety officer almost every day. And the first time I called an attending and said, hey, we were just having a huddle, and I heard about this patient. What do you think is going on with this patient? I so startled the attending that in their only question practically was, how do you know about this before I know about this? Ah. And, uh, you know, I think I called him at 4 o'clock. I think the next day that attending put in 330 huddles at, at his unit uh, just to make sure that uh, <laughs> nobody uh, would ever hear about anything before he heard about it. So that it's, I say that to say uh, it's an example of I couldn't have predicted that but um, it was one of the benefits of getting started before we were ready. All right. Thank you so much. So Dr. Stephen Muthing and Dr. Ann Lyron coming to us from the great state of Ohio, my birthplace, and uh, but that's not why it's necessarily <laughs> a great state. Um, Cincinnati, in fact. So, it is, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Your knowledge was just invaluable today and your perspective, and thank you for a very, very robust conversation and uh, chat engagement today. Carol Harridan did have to slip back, but she was here for most of the hour. Thank you, Carol, as well. Uh, Our discussion continues after the show on IHI's Facebook page, and you can find that little nice icon of Facebook uh, on the bottom of IHI.org's homepage. Next up on WIHI on June 20th, Essential Skills for Healthcare Reformers and Improvers Holding Tension and Learning Habits of the Heart. Now, don't think that's squishy because we're going to have Parker Palmer here and Jeff Selberg, and it's going to be a really, really fascinating uh, journey about kind of how we're all connecting day to day with all this very, very hard and important work like the work we heard about today. The website about, or the webpage I should say about that program is now live as well. And again, a reminder, you can find uh, tomorrow morning the audio archive of this show plus nice resources. You can download the chat uh, from our program today. That might be very, very useful for you if you're trying to show others what kind of conversation is taking place. And we have a brief survey that always pops up. Please fill it out. We always want to know how we can do things better. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are the wonderful Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, and Matt Morrison, our Northeastern co-op, Rachel Yates. And we have sort of this fun music that opens the show that we had from the very beginning, Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. Original arrangements. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thank you.